0: Welcome to the GeoEconomics Podcast. I'm your host, Alexa Mazovic, and today I'm speaking to Dr. Klaus, whose full name is available in the podcast title. Dr. Klaus is an Associate Professor at Halmstad University in Sweden, and one of the most interesting academic voices in this space, in my opinion. In this conversation, uh, we'll be going into our podcast's namesake, Geoeconomics, and what it means for us. Uh, I think this may be particularly useful for those among us who are bored or disappointed with mainstream economic academia and are looking for a fresh perspective on the economic situation we find ourselves in. And here we are with Dr. Klaus himself. Dr. Klaus, how are you doing today?
1: Thank you, Alexa. Very good. And you?
0: Doing quite well. Thank you. Well, uh, we were brought together, Dr. Klaus, and uh, you can say more about this, by a book that you'd written that is the namesake of this podcast. So you could, could you tell us more about that?
1: Okay. So it's a book called Geoeconomics. And um, so there are a few books on geoeconomics uh, published, not that many. This book is uh, available for free online so if you just google my name and geoeconomics you can uh, you can find it easily there the book it's basically my research interest for i would say over two decades
0: so, what is it about geoeconomics that makes it interesting? I mean, a lot of people that I speak to, they're really interested in like geopolitics and conflict analysis. And uh, you know, some of them even go into psychologizing political leaders. But uh, what, what is geoeconomics and why does it matter?
1: Yeah. So geoeconomics is a version, you could say, of geopolitics. So it goes back to geopolitics, it starts with geopolitics. The term was, as you, as your listeners will know, it was coined by, by a guy called Lutwak, who is still alive. I, I think. He's from Romania. Grew up in um, Italy and England. And uh, there's been many important French contributions also by, for instance, Pascal Loro uh, in Sweden by Stefan Dédier. What happened is that, you know, if you go back if you go back uh, To the 70s, 60s, during that time, the state was the major player and historically the state has been the major player. So also internationally, you can think about England going to to conquer India, making it it a a colony and um, the operations were basically run by the states. Now, with international business spreading in the 17s and 80s, we saw that companies were getting larger and larger, and they were taking the role of states that states used to have. So their uh, geopolitical importance started to change. But the private companies fundamentally different from the states. So the geoeconomics occurred, came into being, when people started to define what are the differences and what is the relationship now between private sector and uh... Public sector,
0: and it's weird to think that you know in the 1700s, uh, 1600s, there used to be these massive uh, joint stock companies, uh, you know, primarily from the Netherlands and uh, and from England or the United Kingdom, what have you, the uh, Hudson Bay Company or the East India Company, and these different companies. It's weird to think to think how the transfer from uh, from business to government happened uh, in that period, and then again in this sort of second wave of globalization that came after the colonial period in the Uh, in the post-war era of the 60s and 70s so
1: exactly it started in the netherlands yeah so the first stock exchange the first ships the first companies to undertake private initiatives started in the netherlands and it made the netherlands the the ruling nation of the world eh? so before england took over
0: Absolutely. And I mean, uh, another uh, country that most people don't really think about that much during this period is Portugal. And the way that uh, that Portugal did business with a lot of these colonies is by building up so-called uh, feitorias, which were these sort of no. trade posts slash military outposts. And yeah. now to bring that into sort of more of a modern uh, light... It feels to me like special economic zones and military bases and all of these logistical developments. So even like railroads and uh, intermodal uh, terminals, all of these logistical slash military pieces of infrastructure play a similar role to what these feitorias played back in the colonial times. And particularly I'm thinking about about, say, the Belt and Road. So what do you think can be observed in the modern world as similar to the colonial?
1: Yeah, exactly. So you're talking about Portugal then of the 15th century, right, when they started to explore Northern Africa and went all the way to Nigeria, and then they went over to Brazil and set up their factories. So they're building a logistics centre, right? They're building uh, transportation lines. And the Belt and the Road Initiative is, uh, is exactly the same. Uh, the Belt and Road Initiative is basically, of course, as everyone knows, it's the, um, the reinvention of the Silk Road. But for the Chinese, it's something even more important. It is not to be too dependent of transportation at sea. So transportation at sea because of the choke points are a big risk. So how do you avoid this risk? Well, you develop alternative uh, routes uh, inland.
0: So what are some of the choke points that uh, China is trying to transcend this way?
1: Well, there are a number of choke points. Uh, The most important is um, the Malacca Strait, the Ormus Strait, the whole Suez Canal, Panama. So there, there there are numerous choke points. And the problem with these points is that they can be shut off very quickly, and uh, that will have tremendous economic uh, impacts.
0: As we saw recently in the uh, Suez Canal with the, uh, I keep forgetting the name, I think it's the Ever Given that blocked up the Suez Canal.
1: Exactly. Exactly. So you want to avoid that. and One way of avoiding it is by having alternative ways to transport goods
0: and china is doing this in a price effective way even though they're doing it via rail and these intermodal terminals and all of these you know overland transport routes i'm wondering now how does the price system function because there's really no cheaper way to transport uh, transport things other than via sea i remember a great statistic which is that uh, container ship uh, sorry uh, a single 20 foot container moving from uh, shanghai to mombasa costs around $500 to transport and then transporting that Same container from the port of Mombasa to, let's say, Kigali Special Economic Zone is another $3,000, although the distance is minuscule compared to what the container has already crossed. So I'm wondering, like, how does it make sense for China to invest this much money into uh, infrastructure of this type?
1: Uh, First of all, you save time. So there are two two issues, right? It's time and money. Uh, So, first of all, you will Uh, save time in the long run you will probably also save money what people look at today they look at the belt and road initiative as it is now with kind of simpler roads simpler trains uh, you have to reload the trains all of that takes extra time and costs extra money but that is soon going to be uh, fixed so i think that not only will you save them enormous amounts of time but in the long run you will also save uh, save costs by doing it that way
0: i have a well Map that in my room that I'm uh, actually looking at right now, and uh, specific route that I mentioned of uh, Mombasa to uh, to Rwanda is extremely yeah. short. But the map that I have doesn't uh, doesn't show international uh, highways, trade routes, railroads, or uh, or anything like that. What is the importance of uh, of all of these, you know, logistical networks? I mean, looking at a map, we don't see this stuff. But essentially, it's more about how connected something is rather than how close something is to another place straight as the crow flies
1: and uh, it's about who owns these roads too we need to transport if we want to transport then goods from europe back to china we have to ask the owners of this network which will then primarily be the chinese we have to ask them of permission and they will set they will be the ones setting the price if we don't like it well then we have to use the sea the sea lanes the scene lines will then probably, we know they're going to take much longer time and going to be much more more expensive. So the importance of this network is, uh, is, uh, is enormous. And like you say, the Portuguese excelled in this in the 15th century. America has excelled in infrastructure. Uh, if you go back, England has excelled in this. And uh, and now it's the turn of China.
0: Yeah, so I mean, it sounds like uh, I think this was back in the 40s or 50s, the Eisenhower administration put in the uh, interstate highway system. And before yeah. that, uh, transport in the US was primarily uh, locked up in you know river transport and uh, just very basic roads and railroad. Yeah. Uh, so so I'm thinking about like what is the next major uh, development of that of that type? Because when you're looking at the U.S., it's like this single integrated market, and I'm now wondering what is the next integrated market that still hasn't been logistically connected well. I'm thinking of one, but I, I want to see what you think first.
1: All right, good. <laughs> I think you're thinking about space, right?
0: Well, partially yes, but uh, there's okay. a, there's another one which is uh, AFKUFTA, the uh, African Continental Free Trade Area. But yeah. uh, I wanna I wanna hear what you think about space first.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So space, I mean, space started, uh, as you know, with the Russians have taking the lead and then America came very quickly. And uh, now the Chinese are coming very quickly to compete uh, against the United States. And uh, they plan to have their own um, space station now ready. I think it's next year. They've had some problems, but, uh, you know, we can imagine trade trade zones being built on the moon. We can imagine uh, that uh, space will be just To create logistics in space will be just as important as creating logistics on land. When it comes to Africa, I've traveled quite a bit in Africa. And of course, like everyone else who travels there, you become amazed that the economic reality of Africa has been Chinese already for more than 10 years. And uh, the reason is very simple is because it's much easier to to sell cheap goods in Africa. And that's basically what China has had. They've had an abundance of, uh, of cheap. Uh, products. So even though Africa has a reality, a cultural reality that is French and uh, and English, the economic reality of China is already predominantly Chinese.
0: So I'm thinking about also what what China has been doing. Obviously, uh, China is moving more towards domestic consumer economy and uh, middle income sort of situation. And we can talk about that a bit more. But with regard to Africa, China's been moving some of its uh, manufacturing over to uh, various African countries as well, particularly I'm thinking of Ethiopia, but perhaps there are uh, other... other case studies that we can look at as well of Chinese manufacturing moving to the African continent?
1: Yeah, I mean, there are companies, um, <clears throat> basically what the Chinese do, uh, a little bit harsh, is that they divide the world a little bit into, like we used to do, into bee cultures and do cultures. Uh, I saw there was a, a recent American book now coming up talking about tight cultures and loose cultures, but I think it's the same idea. And when they see that it's more of a bee culture, they bring normally their own people in to do the work. When it's more of a, of a do culture they try to use more local uh, local workforce to do the work
0: I see so what would be an example of a bee culture and what would be an example of a do culture
1: yes so so a do culture then is uh, is one that is built on virtues of hard work you could say and a bee culture is um, It's a culture that normally just enjoys more other aspects than, first of all, than work. So like
0: cultural cohesion and, uh, and family life and stuff like that.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And what is very important here, I think is this debate in, in, in Europe, it's, always ends up in a, in a kind of a strange discussion that people who are in, in uh, do cultures are better than the ones in B culture. So that's not the case. You know, the life itself can be much more enjoyable in a B culture than in a do culture. But for the sake of business, it's, you know, it decides where you build your factories. And
0: Absolutely. Um, I think the Chinese
1: are testing out a lot now in uh, in Africa, they're testing different countries and different cultures. And of course, also, they're bringing their own people to, to work, you know, on the African country uh, continent, uh, all over the continent.
0: So this is a very, very strange thing. So uh, way back in the day during uh, colonial uh, colonial Portuguese times, uh, if you were uh, out of a job as, you know, a service provider, a hairdresser, for example, in, uh, in Portugal, in mainland Europe, you could ship yourself over to uh, many of the uh, Portuguese colonies, like particularly... Yep. Uh, particularly, Mozambique was uh, was a destination in which one could sort of make their own uh, fortune and then uh, yes. travel back to uh, to Portugal. And what it, what this sounds like, and this is sort of a you know trite point that's been talked about a lot. But this is sort of a new age of Chinese colonialism. And obviously, you know, the Chinese aren't doing the level of uh, you know uh, exploitation that uh, Europeans used to back in uh, back in colonial times. But it's an interesting way to think about what this means for the domestic co- economy of uh, of China. China and sort of how the economic culture is going to change domestically yeah. in China as a result of this.
1: And this is a major uh, challenge we have in the West is that uh, we simply, we don't want to go to Africa. So, you know, I ask my students every year, you know, if I give you, uh, uh, you know, same salary as you have here, or maybe a little bit better salary than you have in Sweden, how many people would like to, you know, take a job in Africa? And the answer is practically no one wants to go to Africa. Uh, you ask the same question in China, and there is a large portion of the population who are willing to go. Now, it's not only a monetary question, it's also a monetary question, but I think it also has to do with curiosity. You know, it's, it's going a little bit back to the Portuguese, you know, in the in the 15th century, there was a lot of curiosity. And um, you see some of that curiosity in the, in the Western world, of course, when young students travel a little bit around the world and see different capitals. But uh, very rarely do they go to Africa, very rarely do they go to, you know, Tajikistan or other places that are not affluent. And that is a, that is a major challenge for the Western world.
0: Definitely agreed. Um, it's just strange that you just mentioned uh, Tajikistan, and I'd mentioned Ethiopia previously in this discussion. It just uh, clicked in my mind and made me think about something. There was a border conflict uh, that may be ongoing not too long ago between Kyrgyzstan and uh, Tajikistan. And exactly. a part of that conflict, if I'm not mistaken, was regarding water rights in sort of the border area, because I think it's a, it's a watershed area area for uh, for the various rivers originating in the uh, in the mountains in that region and then similarly yeah. there's uh, there's conflict brewing and uh, major disagreements regarding the uh, Renaissance Dam between uh, Ethiopia and Sudan and yeah. it looks like there's a, a new period of water conflicts that's evolving between various countries so harkening back to the subject of geoeconomics and geopolitics it looks yes. like the economics of water is influencing the actual on the ground politics of like conflict and international relations i was wondering what you think about this sort of water approach to uh, geoeconomics
1: yeah. and it's not new it's, it's, uh, you know, we can have a whole lecture only on that topic. It's correct. If you go to Tajikistan, uh, the area, it has a lot to do with how these two countries are formed, how they're shaped. You know, they they go into each other, so to speak, if you look at the border. And the problem there is not only uh, the water, but it's that the most fertile land is in kind of a pocket. And there is water coming through that area. So the problem there is partly water, but it's partly also the way that, that the borders have been drawn. That is the problem. Now, water is, of course, a huge geopolitical issue if you look at china for instance who were who have enormous amount of water they basically control all the water or most of the water going down to india most of the water then going down to to the south asian countries the
0: source uh, of the mekong is in china if i'm not mistaken
1: uh, yeah, that's correct. But you have, you know, you have, uh, you know, you have uh, you have about twenty plus large rivers that goes from Tibet and um, all the way to uh, to the oceans. So water is uh, is has been a scarcity for a long time, but it's becoming even more so. And then of course also it's problematic because many countries, then in particular China, are building huge ele- electrical water dams. So that is also reducing the or at least controlling the flow of water, which is then directly influencing the countries that live uh, downstream.
0: I mean, a famous example is the uh, Three Gorges Dam. I couldn't say which river it's on. Do you happen to know? Uh,
1: No, I would have to look that up. Too. But
0: the one thing that I know about the Three Gorges Dam is that it displaced so much water that it actually like changed the world's uh, rotational axes. Like it's it's that massive of a project. And uh, I think that the Chinese have a very interesting way of going about these uh, mega projects. Could you tell me more about like, you know, inside of the uh, Belt and Road, what are some of the mega projects that uh, that China's been constructing in places other than their own mainland China?
1: Um, yeah, so the Belt and Road. Then, as you know, it starts. Well, some people say it starts in Shanghai and and uh, Suzhou. Historically, uh, the gate is about at Chian. Uh, so from Qi'an basically, you have enormous new projects going all the way to 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 Germany, and uh, they're just too many to uh, to note on that route. But the thing is to remember is that it's not only one route. You know, it's of, often portrayed as being only one route. It's a whole, it's a system of routes. And uh, the logic there is also that, okay, let's say you have a conflict with Kazakhstan, okay, then you can use the route through Pakistan, you know, and go down to Gwadar, and uh, you can use ships, or you can go into Tajikistan, and you can go by Turkmenistan and around the Caspian Sea. So the whole logic here is of, you know, developing all of these different possibilities and options so that if there is uh, some sort of conflict and there always will be conflicts with these countries, then you can always have uh, an alternative uh, route to get to Europe because this is what it's about. It's about uh, building good routes, a good infrastructure between China and Europe, basically.
0: I think that that's a really important point to harp on because uh, previously during this conversation, we mentioned how China is becoming sort of a middle-income country, and uh, as an economist, I'm sure you know about the uh, middle-income trap that uh, China may be finding itself a victim to. Whether or not it is, I uh, I can't say for sure, but uh, I'm I'm certain that uh, many Chinese leaders are are understanding that uh, if they don't succeed in breaking out of the middle-income trap, they will be in the situation where uh, their own, you know, averagely wealthy population will end up becoming sort of a consumer economy, and they won't be able to to break out in uh, in any direction and they'll just stay in the same income level and hence the uh, the middle income trap. So it sounds to me like the Belt and Road is partially a tactic to uh, to break out of this paradigm and try to uh, move to something else. So could you say more about like what yes. the Belt and Road is intentioning with regard to this middle income trap?
1: I mean all countries just want their citizens to prosper, right? It's um, for so for China it's the same as for Europe. Uh, So far, the Chinese as everyone knows has succeeded in, in bringing you know about some people say seven or 900 million people out of pe- poverty into the middle class and of course that also creates a pressure right so it's, it's it's a continuous pressure to 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 have your salaries increased part of the way that china is solving it is by moving production cheaper production to other countries first of all in, in south southeast asia and that's also why they are continuing the belt and road doesn't only go to doesn't only go to Europe it also goes to Vietnam and Cambodia. So 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 there is this uh, pressure. The, the important thing to remember is that the pressure is much bigger in the western world than it is in Asia. Because what is happening in the in the uh, in the western world also in Sweden is that a large part of the population now is going from the middle class to the poor classes. So Even in Sweden, we we have statistics now that shows that the the class of poor people is actually increasing. And uh, for any state, that um, that is a major risk. Puts enormous of on, on politicians
0: so I want to focus on that a bit uh, a bit closer when you say uh, a growing percentage of uh, of Europeans is entering sort of the uh, lower classes is this uh, is this observed at an absolute level like an absolute income level or uh, percentage-wise the uh, the income inequality gap is spreading so that uh, more people are getting marginalized into uh, into the lower end of that curve or uh, what's what's going on just econometrically yeah. speaking
1: yeah I think the important thing is to see there that, you know, average people in Europe uh, who used to be middle class, they're getting poor. You've seen that in the United States. I mean, if you look at the U.S. economy in the 50s and 60s, it was amazing. You know, you could be a plumber in the U.S. uh, You could have maybe your, your wife was at home. You could have two children. You can send both of those two children to university. That sounds almost like fiction today. So, You see it in concrete examples like that in the United States, and you see it also in the Western world. You see it, uh, uh, for instance, now also in Sweden. So this is a major, yeah, to keep people in the middle class. That is the big challenge. Uh, Then, of course, also it's a challenge that you, you know, most people want to see that their life is improving the whole time. And for the whole time that you and I have been uh, uh, alive, uh, Alexa, this has been the case uh, in the Western world that, you know, people are used to um, to see that uh, every year goes a little bit better. If things don't go better, then... Uh it has tremendous political implications. If it is China or Europe, it's it's the same logic.
0: In many ways, I think that you're quite right in the fact that uh, every year is uh, better than the one previous, you know, with blips like the global financial crisis or a COVID or whatever uh, just being outliers. But uh, essentially, everything is on the up and up. But there's a weird thing that happened where uh, in the 60s or 70s, there, there was almost something like a break where uh, true economic growth doesn't continue. Continue, and it looks like there's a there's a stagnation exactly. in the quality of life that people are achieving so this is uh, for me from a balkan country my parents and generations before me for example would have something called uh, yugo nostalgia where they're uh, nostalgic of the times of yugoslavia for example wherein they could yes, you know yes. work in state owned companies and take take vacations regularly they would have a car they'd uh, live a pretty exactly. decent middle class life similar to the us so i was wondering if you could uh, go more, a bit more into what caused this break in the 1960s 70s wherever whenever this this break occurred that uh, economic growth doesn't seem to be as sustainable or uh, as evenly distributed as it was until then
1: what, what first of all what happens then after the 50s and 60s is is in one word is debt so suddenly the increase in living standards all being uh, financed by debt and more and more debt so it's not it's not real economic uh, uh, growth it's it's borrowed money it's borrowed time and that's what we've experienced now for the past uh, you know 30 uh, 30 plus years and uh, right now when we sit here and talk today we're at an extreme point of debt so it's not only personal debt it's the state has debt companies have debt municipalities have that, so that has been the kind of the political answers to how to solve this it's been by okay we cannot be more productive what should we do then well we will borrow to compensate so maybe we're not going to too many predictions in this in this part but you know this this logic uh, cannot continue so at a certain point we have to go back again to to think about productivity and production and exports and uh, and now we're circling
0: back to the that's
1: what yeah that's what many Asian countries are doing. You know, not only China, but a uh, large part of Asia.
0: Yeah, and now we're uh, sort of circling back to hard economies. Um, What I specifically noticed as you were uh, as you were talking is this sort of inherent growth obligation that institutions had in the they had established it in sort of the post-war period before the 70s, and then yeah. uh, they had to continue following up with their promise of uh, ever uh, ever increasing yeah. li- uh, living standards. And the way they did that, apparently. Is through uh, is through debt financing and uh, various ki- kinds of you know financial and political trickery, and mm-hmm. uh, exactly. there's no there's no really underlying hard economic development that's going on. And now what you're no. talking about is that this uh, hard economic development, like infrastructure and manufacturing and you know agriculture, farmer, just all of this hard stuff that's actual physical goods, is uh, no. the biggest growth in those sectors is taking place in Asia Pacific. Am I sort of getting that yeah. right?
1: Yeah. So you know you. will remember this and the listeners will remember this that uh, you know in the in the 80s and 90s even production was being seen as something foul something dirty you know we should do services instead yeah the
0: outsourcing development particularly
1: exactly and that was pure suicide and i i i wrote an article scientific article on that called the service the service fallacy so that was a huge strategic error i think it happened because the, the public sector was growing too much and the nation states they needed an Excuse to see to say why the increase in the public sector was good. So they classified it as a service, and then they linked that to BNP, and then everything was fine. Because I mean, if you think about it, this is pure madness. So if you start a new department, uh, you know, a state department, and you fill it with thousands of people, that's actually being uh, uh, registered in our economy as economic growth, as economic value, even though the people there might not be doing anything of use. So that goes to you know that's connected to what we call the the, the BNP measure. So-, so
0: it's like a make work program back from the uh, back from the Great Depression. Era where they would just you know do some type of not necessarily productive work so that there's something going along going on. What which nations made this error and uh, why is it that uh, why is it that they did it? And then a second part of that question would be who learned from it and how are they uh, adapting from the lessons learned so as not to make that same mistake?
1: Okay, yeah. So all the Western countries did this, particularly those countries where you had the larger public sector, like France, Scandinavian countries. So they they like to. Do this, and um, what was your second question there, Alex?
0: Uh, the second question was who learned from these and is now in the process of like not making that same mistake.
1: Yeah so I think we have still haven't learned from that you know some countries traditionally have focused more on production and exports like Sweden and Germany so it's like in the culture and it used to be also the case for US i would say it's still also partly uh, the case in the US even though the US made a huge of course error in exporting production so they basically exported too much of production to other countries first of all to asia so i think we haven't really learned from it yet uh, that's a, that's a big problem, but I think that some cultures have been more resistant to this this change than, than others. You know, it basically goes back to the case that, you know, mercantilism became a foul word. A lot of this also goes back to economic theory. You know, it would be very interesting to talk also more, or more about economic theory. You know, geoeconomics is economic theory, but there are very few people who take geoeconomics seriously. You know, there are very few books, very few lectures, conferences on geoeconomics. So it's it's very far from mainstream e- economics and uh, i think that you know basically if you look back to the past two generations it's been uh, also a failure of economic theory you know it's been the it, it's been in part the economic theories also that have led uh, the Western world astray
0: i think there's a massive problem with how economics is being thought about what it seems like to me is that since the 70s and uh, i just need to hearken back to the uh, inherent growth obligation idea that we'd mentioned previously it sounds to me like economics has been sort of adapting itself to this to this ideology almost that's been uh, taking control of institutions whether uh, universities or governments or uh, various other institutions throughout the primarily western world and you know economic econ, economists are going to write about various subjects like you know the economics of hairdressers or of dentists or of various other professions but they rarely write about the economics of econ, uh, of econometricians and economists so they don't necessarily go that deep into subjects of who is writing economics papers and, you know, just a meta review of which direction is economic science growing in. And what I'm looking for and what I really hope to find is an almost engineering style toolbox and approach for uh, how to make projects that geoeconomically make sense particularly special mm-hmm. economic zones because as uh, as you'd mentioned in the conversation that we had previous 90 percent of special economic zones fail and the reasons they do i assume is mostly because of either lack of political support or lack of geoeconomic underpinning so i was wondering if you could tell me more about a potential framework as opposed to just ideological understanding of how to make geoeconomics work for people?
1: Yeah, I think to do that, you have to see how economics went wrong. So what happened is, Is that, you know, after Second World War, the the winners of the Second World War wanted a new paradigm. So they basically said that, you know, this um, old paradigm of looking at history and, and combining politics with economics is not leading us in the right direction. So we need to look at something more successful. So they looked at the natural sciences and then they shaped the new, what they call then social sciences and economics was a part of that. They shaped that all around them and at the natural sciences. And first of all, around physics. So physics served as a model for economics. But if you looked a little bit earlier, there were very productive, very good uh, suggestions of how to link it to biology. Uh, We study everything in biology through evolutionary theory, but except for mankind. That's very strange. I mean, we study ants, we study birds with evolutionary theory. But we somehow decided not to study man with evolutionary theory.
0: I might be jumping the gun here, but are you possibly uh, suggesting that we take a look at evolutionary economics as a potential way of thinking about things?
1: So uh, there is not one evolutionary economics. There are many evolutionary economic ideas, and they were very well developed uh, in the 19th century on the continent, first of all, in, in, in Germany. There were also many good American scholars who came to to Berlin and other places to study uh, economics and came home. And uh, so there there was quite a number of people in the U.S. also interested in this. And there were people learning from those people also, like the most famous would be Veblen, Torsten Veblen, who went to University of Chicago. So these ideas also started to penetrate a long time before the Second World War in United States. But then after the Second World War, things, could, the whole study of economics became completely different. And the problem is it has less and less to do with reality. And that's the major reason now why we are losing our competitive advantage. It is that the theory we've been studying now for two generations is is hasn't helped sufficiently. And uh, I write about this quite quite a bit in the book. So for those interested in in, in going into Darwinism and uh, evolutionary theory, uh, there is a chapter on that.
0: We'll definitely be linking all of the uh, books that you've uh, that you've written in the uh, in the description here. other than uh, other than the books, what other uh, work do you do that might be uh, interesting to our listeners?
1: So, um, so, you know, I, I like to teach and uh, I like to do research, but I also been doing for 20 years, a lot of consulting. Uh, I used to work in the private industry before I used, uh, I was three years in KPMG. I've worked in U.S. and um, France and And Germany. And basically the two most important parts of consulting I have now is one is related to the course I give in intelligence studies. So I'm the editor-in-chief of a small journal called the Journal of... uh, intelligence studies in business. And it's basically about, you know, getting companies to how should a company understand the world to separate between what is fake and what is true. Uh, It's it's a lot about tackling, you know, your biases, your cultural biases, organizational biases, and um, also then individual biases. The second part of service that I do is something called trade show intelligence. Uh, And I also have a book on that topic, uh, on, on Springer. And um, basically what I do there is I travel with companies all around the world to trade shows and show them how they can use trade shows, not only to sell products, but also to gather information. So that's what's called trade show intelligence. And uh, so for the past uh, 15 years, I probably traveled with something like 40 different companies basically in the IT industry and in, in the furniture industry.
0: So and, and it's funny that you're Swedish and that you uh, were active in the furniture industry. Exactly.
1: Um, and that's exactly uh, correct, your comment there. <laughs> These two industries are two large industries uh, in Sweden.
0: Um, I was wondering if we could uh, just go back to uh, to the intelligence gathering aspect of things. You mentioned, uh, you know, removing various sorts of biases that we have. So it sounds to me like the approach that you're uh, advocating is more about removing noise than trying to identify, you know, some greater truth through a positivist uh, way of thinking. Is that about right?
1: Yeah, we call it normative intelligence and. So acknowledging that it is norm, you know, it's it's normative. You know, you can take some silly examples like um, the people have different opinions about like, um, you know, who is to blame for the Second World War. Then, you know, many people will immediately say, well, it was the Germans, of course, because they started the war. And then others will will say, well, it was the Versailles Treaty because it was too strict. You know, even Keynes said that, uh, you know, that agreement was so strict. And of course, it led to hunger, it led to massive poverty in Germany, which then created the uh, uh, animosities that eventually led to the Second World War. So for all issues, you know, no matter if they're historical issues, or economic issues, or um, they're always perspectives, and they're always biases. And, um, and today, when it's so well acknowledged that you know, information is the most important way to achieve a competitive advantage, we need to seriously question, you know, the information sets and what is it that we believe and why do we believe it. So the more critical, the more self-critical we can be in organizations, the, the more competitive we will be. And have these conversations uh, with companies.
0: Can you say more about the normative approach? You use the word a few times, but I'm not exactly sure what you mean by it.
1: So normative just simply means that you put your values into it and the values can be different depending upon which country you are in. So there is not like one standard, there's not one way of seeing it, but there might be several different perspectives. So I think that you know a company an organization that says well this is the truth uh, we've decided that this is what we will go with and um, a company that is too you know is not open to understand others' perspectives will be at a at, at a disadvantage. So there are to put it in other words that there, there are intelligence yeah there are facts but there are different perspectives of seeing those facts and depending on the, upon the different perspectives you might reach different conclusions. That's very important today when you have very different cultures meeting each other from the west and from the east i mean this is one of the major problems is that we who live in the west have such great difficulties in understanding uh, asian cultures
0: absolutely i mean uh, with regard to how global cultures interact in this uh, you know newly globalized world uh, it sounds to me like the best way to uh, to communicate would be to remove everything except for the uh, very base- basic aspect of what we're uh, what we're talking about and yeah. when when all else is stripped away, I think that the only thing remaining is geoeconomics, is water rights, is you know exactly. mineral fishing rights. Uh, there's recently been a bit of a, a conflict between France and uh, and the United Kingdom, which I hadn't uh, thought that I'd be saying anytime soon regarding fishing rights near the uh, near the Isle of Jersey. Exactly. And exactly. now the French were uh, were threatening to shut off electricity to the island. Mm. So you know we can say what we want about uh, cross-cultural competence. But the only thing in the end that matters is geoeconomics.
1: That's a very good example. And it shows exactly why why this discipline is much more relevant in my eyes than, you know, if you take, for instance, neoclassical economics or other schools of economics thinking. And that's the, you know, that's the reason why um, why I wrote the book. And this is the reason why uh, I'm interested in this field.
0: It sounds to me like the problem of economics is that it's, it's way past time for uh, the science to evolve from, the rationalist, you know, uh, early scientific approach yeah. that they've had to a more uh, empirical and, you know, sober analysis of, yeah. what, of what the world is actually like. Um, exactly. Booker- and,
1: and, it, and it will change. It will change. The problem is, the sad part is it doesn't change because of arguments. So you would think that we live in an intellectual world where you can present premises and draw conclusions and people would listen to it. Ideas don't work like that. So this will only change when the Western world is under enough pressure. So then we will go back more to the uh, real political uh, ideas and the real political perspectives. And we will have to reconsider simply in order to stay competitive. So it's, it's, the, it's the outside forces of competition that will change the ideas. It's not the, it's not the discussions in academia. It's not the discussions in the scientific papers that no one reads. It's not those arguments that will change the scene of economics. It's the economic realities.
0: So we've been in sort of this paradigm in which it was possible to have uh, false ideas for very long t- periods of time and not pay the price for them. And now, exactly. with uh, it sounds to me like you're saying that with the rise of Asia, the Western world needs to wake up to its folly and figure out uh, figure out proper economic science and proper uh, proper societal organizations that work because they're no longer in this post World War II era where they can just uh, you know, skate along, so to speak, on these not necessarily sober uh, economic philosophies.
1: Very well said. Very well said. So as long as you are the leader, um, you know, you can permit yourself anything. Then you are just looking at status quo. You know, like many famous economists, you know, they're linked to big, big, large companies that are already uh, successful. And um, it's not about the ideas, you know, it's, it's about uh, supporting the largest economic interests. But when those economic uh, interests are failing, then there will be also uh, ideological and uh, theoretical changes. So I think that's what we're seeing. Uh, we've been seeing that now for the past 10 years. So, yeah, you have to see also geoeconomics is not that old, right? So this is a relatively, uh, it's a new field
0: and i was just about to ask of uh, a relatively new field do you think that uh, geoeconomics will show itself best in the uh, in the academic space do you think it's going to get adopted there first and then uh, move on to the rest of the world or are our uh, organizations like special economic zones or uh, you know hard uh, hard economic businesses like manufacturing and logistics and all of these are they going to be sort of the progenitors and early adopters of geoeconomics as a way of thinking and like which direction is this science going to move and uh, who's going to be the, uh, the main group pushing it forward?
1: Yeah, I think definitely the force is coming from practitioners, not from, uh, from theorists. Theorists will be the last one to change. So that's the last people you will convince are the people working in government, or the politicians, or the people at the university. Those will, you know, they, they will take a long time to convince them. And that has to do with other political ideologies. And I'm not sure how, how far we're going to get into that here. But that has to do with overarching ideas of the Western world being built more on individualistic principles. And then uh, many Asian countries being built more around collectivist ideas.
0: I think that's a really interesting point to uh, to stop on, uh, Dr. Klaus. We've been uh, we've been at this for about uh, an hour now. There are several subjects that I want to uh, go into if uh, if you have the time, and that's particularly that's particularly the special economic zones aspect of things, which is sort of our uh, our company's bread and butter. We were uh, we were talking about uh, about various national cultures and uh, economic approaches that happen, but what would you say is the most overlooked? aspect of special economic zones, because they account for something like 60% of all global exports in one way or another move through a free trade zone or an export processing zone or a special economic zone. Um, I'm sure that you've done some uh, some of your own reading and research into them. Uh, what would you say is something that uh, that nobody is looking at just as far as these projects go?
1: You know, one thing is you, you mentioned that uh, most of these uh, zones, they, they fail. And, you know, there are different reasons why they fail. Maybe it's too, the politicians have too much involvement and uh, there's too little private initiative, or there can be a number of reasons. I think one reason also why they fail is because they're not already on a well-working logistical route. So there, I think you can learn a lot from the study of geoeconomics and geopolitics, because you can identify those logistical routes, you know, in advance. To give you an, a simple example now with the United States. Now there is, in the United States, there is a huge um, transfer of industry from one state to another from california to texas so if you move a lot of uh, companies from texas from from california to texas then you are creating new routes so if you put up uh, an economic zone there in that area it's much more likely to to be a facilitator on that new route that will probably then go from also will go from texas to um, to, to Asia, to China, for instance.
0: If I'm not mistaken, Tesla is actually opening up a gigafactory that's going to be treated as a foreign trade zone in Texas. So th- this is a hard industry, right? It's, uh, it's auto manufacturing, it's battery manufacturing, it's uh, very... Uh, very high-tech, high-skill level work, yep. and the way that this is uh, that this is made effective is through a special jurisdiction. So I was wondering if you could uh, if you could explore more about how the West uh, can potentially claw its way back to economic. Uh, to economic success and prosperity uh, using, uh, you know, this combination of special jurisdictions and uh, hard industry innovation.
1: Yeah, so I think that the the Western countries must try to identify where are these uh, routes going and then try to set up um, uh, zones in these areas. And um, the question is then, you know, where can we do that? Uh, Where is it allowed? Where is it more difficult? But at the end, also, you need people to be be willing to go there, to live there, to work there. And uh, as we talked about earlier, that in itself is a major challenge. But uh, uh, Tesla is a good example. They're building then a gigafactory. They build a gigafactory in in Europe. Uh, But still, uh, most of the gigafactories that are being built now are being built in China. So I think it's about in the US now, you have about how many gigafactories? Do you have Uh, four or 10 or something like that? In China, I think you have uh, already more than 90 gigafactories if I'm not mistaken. So um, yeah, so it makes sense to to hook up on that route, uh, which then will be a new route going through the uh, through the Mexican Gulf. So you have to try to locate these future routes and uh, try to be a part of the network.
0: And I think uh, a lot of our listeners are going to want to be part of this uh, network of, you know, just geoeconomic thought and moving from uh, from ideological and sort of rationalist ways of thinking in economics more towards uh, more towards a more grounded and practical way of thinking about uh, business and economies. If our listeners want to find you and hear more about your ideas, what are some good places to look for you?
1: Well, the easiest way is always by email. So I think um, it's K-L-A-S-O-L at H-H dot S-E. H-H is the university. It's Halmstad University in Sweden. So uh, otherwise, my books are available on, on Amazon. So I think that's uh, that's the easiest way.
0: Awesome. Uh, Dr. Klaus, I want to thank you for uh, taking the time to talk to us today. Do you have any closing statements or uh, thoughts to share with us?
1: I'm just very excited uh, about this uh, pod that you've started on geoeconomics. And I, I hope that more people will be interested and, uh, and following also the... Uh, the development of these uh, economic zones.
0: You're welcome back onto the podcast anytime, Dr. Zoylan. And uh, I hope that our uh, listeners enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. You've been listening to the GeoEconomics Podcast, and I'll talk to you soon.